0: Uh, go ahead with the logic. Okay, mark logic one and two, Houston, we are set, we have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Follow 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus ten nine eight. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. Four, three, two, one, zero, five. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-ray FM every Wednesday at eight AM or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. So it's pretty clear that, you know, Ikea is probably the most exciting place in the world. That's where people go with their families, you go there to kind of have fun. Well... You know, you know what is really like, but I'll tell you, it did get a little bit more interesting. Now, has announced this week that it's partnered with the Mars Desert Research Station, and they're gonna try and furnish the habitat with space-efficient furniture that theoretically could be put into use for future Mars colonies. So this research station has six teams of scientists and they spend about two weeks living off oxygen packs, food and water rations and all that kind of stuff. And it's really cool because they have to traverse areas around the research station because remember this is like a dress rehearsal. So they've got all-terrain vehicles, they collect rock samples and they take atmospheric readings and it's all in preparation for sending humans to Mars. Now, the Swedish furniture giant, uh, which first began kind of working with the Mars Society, which actually runs the station, uh, they got together about two years ago when IKEA interior designer Christina Levenborn spent several days living in the habitat. Uh, Levenborn designed a line of furniture for small spaces based on her time there. And we're going to get back to that point a little bit later. But, you know, IKEA, it's unique because they make more space out of less space. And that's always been with their product design. The company's brand of Swedish minimalism and, you know, it's all squared off. It's usually collapsible or, you know, sometimes it's made out of thin, lightweight materials. uh, And that's wherever possible. So let's just disregard the debate over, you know, materials they use and durability. IQ's furniture is more like lightweight mid-century modern furniture. Uh, We're used to more today, like big bulky, plush furniture, and that's kind of more traditional American style. But when it comes to space, we really need to think about weight, because we can't always lift up all this heavy furniture to make astronauts feel at home. And that's another point, you know, uh, astronauts, when they want to stay long term in space, you you can't just say, okay, here's your space, go and enjoy this, this area, this little cube. So rather they kind of want to make them feel like they have some ownership of the space, but you don't want to wreck that functionality, especially when you're dealing with an already tiny space. So this development with Ikea uh, that they're putting into practice, we'll all be able to kind of see how it might actually influence our own furniture. And who knows, you might go into Ikea next time, and hey, in no time we'll be able to buy our own Mars couch. Now, Starlink. We talked about how, you know, there was some problems with astronomers. They were looking up and they were like, hey, this Starlink's right in our line of sight. We can't look up into the sky anymore without it kind of obscuring our view. Well, one of the Starlink satellites for the next batch, which is the next 60 that will launch late December, is going to be treated with a special coating. And this is going to be designed to make the spacecraft less reflective. So likely, this is going to lower that interference with space observations. Now, SpaceX president and COO Gwen Shotwell said, we're going to get it done. Now, at the moment, uh, SpaceX has already got in orbit 120 satellites that beam high speed Internet. And by the way, there's thousands more that are going to be launched over the next few years even after just the first launch back in May, you'll remember we talked about, you know, these astronomers were complaining about this, you know, these extremely bright satellites messing up with their work. Well, that got everybody concerned uh, that the constellation will interfere with scientific research and the views into the night sky. However, it's pretty clear that SpaceX were trying to figure out a solution for this and Shotwell said they'll be putting the coating on the bottom and she noted that it's just an experiment. They're not quite sure if it's gonna work and quote, We do trial and error to figure out the best way to get this done. Like I said, with even the first reports of, you know, Starlink satellites disrupting astronomers, the company had taken that issue very seriously, and Shotwell wanted to make that very clear. She even said, We want to make sure we do the right thing, to make sure little kids can look through their telescope. Astronomy is one of the few things that get kids excited about space. But the coating that's being applied to one of these satellites, it's in the third batch, like I said, of the Starlink, and it's kind of going to be towards more of a permanent solution. So as more satellites get deployed, obviously this is going to get implemented. And if we take our minds back a little bit, you'll remember Shotwell said that the company planned to launch batches of 60 satellites to build the constellation that by mid 2020 should be able to provide global coverage. But she said, you know, nobody knew that this was going to be a problem. And we didn't think of it. The astronomy community didn't even think of it. So we're just going to have to see, you know, this experimental coating. Is it going to make the satellites less reflective? Could it actually affect performance? Uh, You know, if that's something that has to get examined and quote, she said, it'll definitely change the performance of satellites thermally. We'll have to do trial and error, but we'll fix it. Now this next piece of news is really quite dramatic. So it looks like SpaceX is adjusting its Starship plans to expedite development. Uh, so as we know, you know, there was the Mark 1 that kind of exploded, and then there was Mark 2 that they were building. But they've been proved to be not flight worthy. Uh, they now want to just go to Mark 3 uh, as quickly as possible, it looks like. So the plan is to just be able to perform the first Starship flight. So if we take ourselves back a little bit in the Starship development journey, you know, you probably heard me talking about Boca Chica, Texas, and then we had the Florida team, and they were kind of working, it was kind of like friendly competition to see, you know, which location is going to be better suited for Starship development. And the Florida-based team, they were building a vehicle that was similar to Mark 1, it was Mark 2, but SpaceX eventually realized that in order to perform the first flight, they were going to need a more robust vehicle. And that's where Mark 1 and 2 came in as the lessons learned for the development now the new vehicle which is mark 3 is already undergoing construction and this is now in boca chica texas and it's being built by a unified team so a lot of those florida based crew members are being moved over to texas as soon as possible now by building the mark 3 with a combined team first of all they're going to be able to build it a lot quicker and subsequently it's going to get into orbit much quicker Now, that does mean that most of the Starship operations in Florida are currently on hold. However, there's a lot of progress that's still being continued to modify Pad 39A, where the Saturn V launched, near the Kennedy Space Center, and that's going to be to support Starship launches. So I don't know how long they're going to continue with that. Are they maybe going to take some of the team over from that, the 39A team? Are they going to bring them over to Texas? We're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, The first signs of collaboration between the Florida and the Texas based teams they were kind of seen at the end of November. And why did I say that? Well, the Starship bulkheads and all the other equipment, it was shipped on a vessel called Go Discovery at Port Canaveral which is only a little drive away from the SpaceX Florida facility and the equipment that Starship equipment which was constructed by the Florida based team has now arrived at the Texas Mark III construction so they're being assembled and you can kind of spot them you know you've got the bulkhead you've got the nose cone you've got the steel barriers that are going to be used to construct Mark III's tank section and while there's some small components that are going to be saved for Mark One, that one that exploded uh, They're going to be used for the Mark III, like the wings, but it's pretty clear that the large majority of the new prototype is built completely from scratch. So, this includes a brand new nose cone uh, rather than repurposing the one that was on the original Mark I. And just on that, actually, the Mark I nose cone is currently sitting idle on a stand, having never been put together with the Mark I Starship tank. So that really does show that they are totally redesigning it. So as we remember, you know, it exploded with the tank pressurization tests and that was all the cryogenic liquids inside. Pretty much the whole of Mark 1 is going to be scrapped. However, we learned over Twitter that parts of it are going to be used in Tesla's new special edition Cybertruck uh, because they use the same Starship stainless steel. So SpaceX is currently preparing the facility at Roberts Road uh, inside of Kennedy Space Center and that's expected to take over most, if not all, of the original SpaceX Florida operations. And this will make transportation to the launch site quite a lot easier uh, for future Starship builds in Florida. Uh, But that being said, it's unclear when the new construction of this Florida-based Starship could begin and, you know, now SpaceX is focusing all its resources on Texas. So we're a little bit in a limbo, but either way, Starship is actually being built a lot quicker now. Now, it's nothing new on the International Space Station to have AI, but there is a new AI going onto the ISS. Now, this was already launched on the SpaceX CRS-19 mission, and it lifted off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, It's already docked with the space station and on board was a robot called Simon-2. Now, this is an astronaut assistant developed and built in Germany and it's been modified with equipment for new tasks. So like its predecessor, and yes, there was a Simon-1, Uh, Simon 2 is going to be used by the European Columbus Research Module. So, Simon, if you want to know what this looks like, go on YouTube and check it out, it looks weird. It's a spherical, free-flying, technology demonstrator kind of robot, and it's equipped with artificial intelligence, and it's designed for human-machine interaction. Christian Karasch, who's Simmons' project manager, said, Simmons-1 was our prototype, it landed back on Earth on the 27th of August 2019, after 14 months on the ISS, and has now arrived at Airbus in Friedrichshafen. The DLR Space Administration commissioned the technology experiment from Airbus and Bremen with funding from the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy. Simon's AI is based on the IBM Watson's technology, and Simon 1 went into operation on the 15th of November 2018, and it was the world's first AI system on the ISS, and it was assisting German ESA astronauts uh, like Alexander Gerst. And Karash says, with Simon 2, we're looking at building on the success of the Simon demonstration. At its premiere, Simon will demonstrate that AI-based mobile applications could be very beneficial on the ISS while working with Alexander Jurst for 90 minutes. It's planned that Simen 2 will stay on the ISS for up to three years. So apart from the AI, uh, Simmon 2 has got more sensitive microphones and more advanced uh, kind of sense of orientation, and the AI's capabilities and stabilities for the complex software applications have also been substantially improved. Another important step for Simmons evolution is its extended lifespan. Uh, during its operational period, they're going to look at uploading the AI to the ISS cloud. Crush said, On the journey to Moon or Mars, the crew would be able to rely on an AI-based service assistant without any permanent data link to Earth. One specific application for Earth would, for instance, be helping people perform complex tasks in areas of poor infrastructure. This is giving me a weird vibe of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It sounds like we're going to rely on these AI to kind of keep track of how are we in stasis and then maybe decide not to wake us up. I don't know. Hopefully Simmons friendly enough that he wouldn't do that. But talking about the AI, it was all done by IBM. And quote, when it was first deployed in the ISS, Simon proved they could understand not only the content within its given context, but also the intention behind it. And that was from Matthias Benoek, who's the IBM lead Watson architect. With the help of IBM's Watson Tone Analyzer from the IBM Cloud in Frankfurt, this way it can kind of tell what, what the astronaut's emotional needs are. Uh, maybe if there's a different way to evaluate a situation, uh, where areas of maybe there's a test going on and how it can come in and help it. So Simon 2 is going to be more of a transition from a scientific assistant into an empathetic companion, so it's really cool. But like I said, go and check him out on YouTube, Simon 2. He looks like a little friendly face floating around, you know, with no body. Uh, hopefully he's just a friendly little guy and he isn't going to shut down the whole ISS. Now, NASA engineers have broke the SLS test tank on purpose. And this was all to test extreme limits. So, this is similar to the SpaceX, uh, kind of what happened with the Starship, how it just exploded. You wanted to kind of test what is the maximum, what is the breaking point. So, engineers at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama back on December 5th, deliberately pushed the world's largest rocket fuel tank beyond its designed limits, Uh, and they really wanted to understand what its breaking point was. So the test version of the Space Launch System's rocket fuel hydrogen tank withstood more than 260% of expected flight loads over five hours before engineers detected a buckling point, which then obviously it ruptured. So the engineers concluded the test at approximately 11pm, so it went on for quite a long time, and the chief engineer of the SLS stages, Neil Oates, said, We purposely took this tank to its extreme limits and broke it because pushing the systems to the point of failure gives us additional data to help us build the rockets intelligently. We will be flying the Space Launch System for decades to come, and breaking propellant tanks today will help safety and efficiency evolve the SLS rocket as our desired missions evolve. So, the test version of the tank aced earlier tests with standing forces expected at the engine thrust levels planned for the Artemis lunar missions, and it showed no signs of cracking, buckling, or breaking. And Marshall's lead test engineer for the tank, Mike Nichols, said, The final test marks the largest ever controlled test-to-failure of a NASA rocket-stage pressurised tank. The data will benefit all aerospace companies designing their own rocket tanks. For all the tests, NASA and Boeing engineers simulated liftoff and flight and stresses, all the kind of stresses that the rocket has when it goes all the way through the atmosphere. Uh, And this was all on the liquid hydrogen tank that's structurally identical to the flight tank. The test tank was fitted with thousands of sensors to measure all the stress, the pressure, and the temperature, while the high-speed cameras and microphones captured every moment to identify buckling or a cracking in the cylindrical tank walls. Luke Denny, who's the qualification test manager for Boeing's test and evaluation group, said, the initial tank buckling failure occurred at the same relative location as predicted by the Boeing analysis team and initiated with 3% of the predicted failure load. Accuracy of these predictions against real life testing validates our structural models and provides a high confidence rate in tank design. So the teams, they're all wrapping up the functional testing of the assembled SLS core stages for the Artemis 1 mission, and already these buildings, they're starting to get the core stage for Artemis 2 missions. Uh, I mean, they've got the 212 foot core stage, and fun fact, that is the largest, most complex rocket stage NASA's ever built since the Saturn V stages. So Julie Bassel, who's the manager of SLS stages office, said, We're happy that NASA's tests with the core stage structural test article will contribute not only to space launch system flights, but also to the design of future rocket propellant tanks. SLS for a while will be the only rocket that can send Orion, astronauts and supplies to the moon on a single mission. SLS, Orion and the Gateway Project, which is going to be in orbit around the moon, they're all NASA's backbone for deep space exploration, which as we know is going to send the first woman and the next man to the lunar surface by 2024. So it's interesting to see, you've got all these rocket companies working on things, but SpaceX with the Starship and the SLS They seem to be moving now at the same pace. We've just had both of them get pushed to their max limits. And it's pretty obvious that early 2020, we're definitely gonna see some kind of a launch, whether it be the Starship or the SLS. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move. And as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8am on X-Ray FM, or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.